Hola y bienvenido to the One Small Bite Show, where we chop diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. In every episode, you'll get a One Small Bite approach you can implement to live a more nourished life. This show is for educational and informational purposes only, so please make sure to connect with the professional support you need, your own discretion. Oh, and we don't bleep out curse words, so just a heads up in case you're with little ones. Okay, let's do this. Hola, welcome to the One Small Bite Podcast. I'm your host, David Orozco, registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor. Listen, before I get started, I want to apologize. I made a rookie mistake in podcasting. I forgot to plug in the microphone. So the whole podcast today was without the microphone. And you could still hear it. It sounds okay. It's just not as crisp and not as nice without the microphone. So my apologies. I'll try to be a little more careful about that next time. Oh, and by the way, my apologies for skipping last week. I ended up getting COVID and it was a really, really busy week. I also had some cooking demos. I was in Orlando the week before that. So it was just one thing after another. But you know how that goes. We're human. All right, here we go. Let's get started. One of the most important conversations I have with new clients is about their weight journey. I'd love to tell you about the story of one specific client, but in reality, this story is incredibly common with so many clients. Let me back up and tell you what I mean. What I often do when I start working with someone is simply get to know them. I ask them about their weight journey, what it means to be in their body. I don't know what it means to be in their body. I don't presume to know what it means. I ask what type of diets or food rules they've engaged in. What types of things they've done to manipulate or try to change their body or to lose weight? I ask them, for example, what a day in their life is like for them in their body. They tell me that they often feel objectified, but more importantly, they are objectified by themselves. In other words, people tell me that being fat means being those things that society says a fat person is or should be. Oh, and By society, I mean how Hollywood, TikTok, TMZ, or even a Google search can result in objectifying people in large bodies. We don't realize how deeply ingrained this objectification is. A thread I hear over and over again is this theme around body shame, weight stigma, weight bias, or this this idea of sizes. Have you heard of sizeism? Well, sizeism is a prejudice or a discrimination on the grounds of a person's shape, size, or weight. This means that there is an ever-present and constant, or heck, you know, a better way of saying it is an even chronic level of stress and negativity about their body. Often, people tell me they feel that being in a large body is unacceptable that they are not enough or less than other people. There is actual data that people in large bodies are otherwise made fun of or turned down for jobs, promotions, or projects in their work just because of their body shape and size. This is definitely more pervasive in women 
people of color, and marginalized individuals in non-binary and transition genders. Essentially, weight stigma is sizeism, and sizeism is a form of discrimination. It is so chronic and pervasive in our society that many people are constantly bombarded with this low level of stress on a regular basis. And, and what's more concerning is that this low level of stress falls below our radar. Sizeism is so pervasive and suffocating in our social vernacular that many of us don't even realize we are saying it to ourselves, even if we're not in a large body. But this internal voice is the very theme I hear many people I work with tell me about their journey. It's hard for them to accept that after all the dieting, exercising, and attempts at losing weight have failed them, they cannot get to that body shape and size that they are supposed to. And I say supposed to here in quotes because it is a social stigma that we are actually placing on each other, not because they have failed. Now, you might be thinking, okay, David, this is helpful. Thanks. But what does it have to do with inflammation? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked. First, let's actually discuss what inflammation is, the types of inflammation, the effects on our health and longevity, and more importantly, what we don't know about inflammation. Then let's discuss how inflammation is connected to our nourishment, and more importantly, how sizeism or the weight stigma affects inflammation. And like always, what I'd like to do is, at the end, provide you with one small bite approach that you can start with today to help you better understand your challenges with inflammation and how to live a nourished and fulfilling life. Let's start with what inflammation is. Well, inflammation is a part of the body's defense mechanism. It's the process by which the immune system recognizes and removes harmful and foreign stimuli or substances and begins the healing process. Inflammation can either be acute or chronic, more than in a minute. To date, however, we don't have a gold standardization in both the collection of inflammatory biomarkers, nor do we have a strong or gold standard of how these inflammatory biomarkers tell us about what is actually happening in the body. For example, typical inflammatory biomarkers are collected through saliva or blood samples, and the most common biomarkers are known as cytokines that are produced by the body as an immune response to protect the body. They are substances such as C-reactive protein, or CRP. There's also erythrocyte sedimentation rate, ESR, plasma viscosity, but there are other inflammatory biomarkers like, for example, interleukin-1b, interleukin-4, interleukin-6, interleukin-8, interleukin-10, tumor necrosis factor alpha, fibrinogen. And then there are cellular types like leukocytes, macrophages, and neutrophils. These are all produced by the immune system to start the immunological and therefore healing process. However, what we don't know is how any one of these biomarkers could tell us we have high blood pressure. Or we have these because there is a thrombosis or a blood clot 
in an artery, or you have IBS or Crohn's disease, or maybe these biomarkers are just because you have a cold or it's been a bad week. So let me get back to what the difference between acute versus chronic inflammation. So acute inflammation is essentially some kind of tissue damage, like a cut, an abrasion, a burn. It could be a microbial invasion or a bacteria like food poisoning, or it could be noxious compounds that you might inhale that might be in the environment. These can induce an acute inflammatory response. It starts rapidly, becomes severe in a short period of time, and symptoms may last for a few days or even a couple of weeks. An example could be something like an infection. Like I mentioned a little while ago, food poisoning can last a few hours to a couple of days. Um, it could be a burn, right? And your skin has to heal over time. There can also be something known as subacute inflammation. This is where the period can last between two to six weeks, more or less. It's sort of like a bridge into chronic inflammation, but not necessarily. Let's talk about chronic inflammation. Chronic inflammation is also referred to as slow or long-term inflammation. It can last for prolonged periods from several weeks to several months to even several years. Generally, the extent and the effects of chronic inflammation vary with the cause, the type of injury, the type of body repair that needs to happen. But it means that we can also have this low level, chronic level of inflammation that's happening on a regular basis. To me, chronic inflammation is so similar to what I've talked about in this podcast before, which is chronic stress. Let that kind of seep in relative to what I was telling you a little while ago about sizeism. I'll get back to that in a minute. Okay. So what is the food and stress relationship with chronic inflammation and, and how does that then deal or work with mortality or chronic illnesses? Let me get directly to how stress can influence food choices and how food choices or what we eat influences stress. And then I'll tie in the inflammatory process in just a minute. So when we are in this stressful state, we can be influenced to eat certain foods. And these kinds of foods have been often talked about as pro-inflammatory. And if you do a, a simple Google search, you, you probably will see the same culprits over and over and over again. And, and I'll talk about what those culprits are in just a minute. But generally speaking, these kinds of foods are stated to be maladaptive metabolically. And therefore, these unhealthy foods can impact your mood and therefore increase pro-inflammatory responses. Because this is a form of stress. What's more interesting is the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve runs through your spinal column and then splinters into a billion different nerve endings throughout your torso, more importantly, throughout your digestive system. And the vagus nerve innervates tissues involved with digestion, absorption, metabolism of nutrients, and vagal activation, which means 
when we are stressed or when we are feeling something strong can directly and profoundly influence the metabolic processes of food as well as inflammation. So in turn, both digestion and stress have negative effects on the vagal activation and the vagal activation contribute to the lively interplay between the brain and the gut. And so what ends up happening is that we eat certain foods that might supposedly make us feel too heavy or slow us down somehow. And then that sends a signal through the vagus nerve to our brains. Now, the problem is, is that our brains might interpret this in a certain way based on what society might have taught us to believe or to think. So if we eat something that is too sweet or maybe too fatty, we've had too much meat, that then might send a signal because it might be a little bit heavy to digest because you might have eaten a whole lot that you've done something wrong. So what ends up happening is that we learn to interpret the signal based on the way society has told us that that signal might mean. Now we have this thought, image, belief, idea of what that is. And so if we see that food, we immediately send a signal to our gut that that food is going to be bad for us. Well, if let's play this out a little bit. If you were hungry, if you were ravenous, now you have this war between what you should and what you shouldn't do. Or better yet, you have this war between the body needing sustenance, even if it's a Twix bar or a Snickers bar or a big, fat, juicy, ba double bacon burger or fries. And then this interplay with you shouldn't be, you're going to be fat, you're going to be ugly, you're going to be stupid, you're going to be slow, so on and so forth. So it's really important to see how that vagal interplay with your mind and your gut can activate inflammatory biomarkers, those cytokines and cellular responses to our gut when we're eating certain things that therefore increases inflammation. So it's important to decipher here is it actually the food or is it actually the belief of what that food is doing to us? This is a really interesting thought process. And unfortunately, we don't have really good research that helps us better understand that. However, better understanding how the stresses, negative emotions, and unhealthy meals work together to enhance inflammation will definitely be a benefit behavioral and to nutritional research. But of course, that takes really hard research and it's pretty expensive to do that kind of stuff. So let's also then talk about mental health and inflammation, which is essentially where I was kind of leading to here a little bit. So mental health issues like depression, anxiety, loneliness, this actually can lead to inflammation because when we are feeling depressed or we're feeling anxious, that then causes a form of stress. Stress is therefore a response that needs to be attacked. What's fascinating, though, is when we are stressed, 
especially chronically stressed, our immune system is somewhat dampened. It's shut down a little bit. And what ends up happening is, is that we don't immediately get those biomarkers until the body then has to heal itself. So if we're chronically stressed, right, we're going through depression or loneliness or anxiety on a regular basis, then sooner or later, when it stops, your body then has to get flooded with these then inflammatory markers. So it seems to be like there is this chronic inflammation, right? It's the stress, those negative emotions that then generate and enhance sympathetic hyperactivity promote oxidative stress, augment activation, chemicals like nuclear factor, kappa beta, which is what, so, so, what starts the immunological inflammatory response, and then boost pro-inflammatory cytokines, like I mentioned a little while ago, C-reactive protein, interleukin-6, fibrinogen, so on and so forth. Now, let me then go back to weight stick or sizeism. This is a form of stress. Nothing more, nothing less. This form of discrimination can lead to more depression, anxiety, substance abuse, suicidality even. So it's important to recognize how this sizeism or weight stigma infiltrates our vernacular and therefore that way of believing and thinking that therefore leads to greater inflammatory responses. It has nothing to do with the food that we're eating, at least not yet. Now, here's one way that sizeism or weight discrimination, weight bias, weight stigma plays out. If you're in a large body, going to the doctor can be such a dilemma. I have many clients report to me that they get sick and tired of doctors saying to them, well, you need to lose weight. Oh, 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 really? Like, I don't know that. Or, okay, well, how do I lose weight? And better yet, how do I lose weight and keep it off? Do you know? Oh, oh, by the way, if a person had the same health problems that I had and they were in a thin or straight-sized body, would you tell them to lose weight? So what happens is people in large bodies essentially feel stigmatized. People actually report that they don't want to go to the doctor because they don't want to hear it. They're tired of that kind of crap. It's a cop-out. Yes, it is. We actually can say it is. So what it does, by not going to the doctor, then it prevents actual level of care. And then they get stigmatized if they do go, which then leads to more depression and anxiety frustration, anger, fear, what other negative emotion can you think of here? Which then these negative emotions, they generate that sympathetic hyperactivity, the promotion of oxidative stress, and boosting pro-inflammatory cytokines. Folks, we haven't even talked about the kinds of foods that are supposedly going to lead to inflammation. But you know what? Let's go ahead and talk a little bit about that. What kind of foods? Well, again, if you do a Google search, you will find the common culprits. There are about six or seven different types or kinds of foods. You'll hear them all the time. High amounts of refined or overly processed foods, sugary foods, 
saturated fat, alcohol, certain red meats. And of course, in these red meats, we're also talking about highly processed meats like sausages or canned or other types of meats that are overly processed, hot dogs, spam, so on and so forth. We also can see that these are the most common culprits over and over and over and over again. We also see when you do these Google search, tons of influencers, maybe on social media as well, not just on Google, social media, uh, TikTok, all the time talking about, well, you know, it's your fault that you are this way. And if you eat these foods, you are doing it to yourself. You're increasing inflammation, which if we back up, inflammation is almost always tied into chronic illnesses. Well, this is common. These chronic illnesses do actually exasperate the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines or biomarkers. And it's necessary because the body has to protect itself, right? So think about it. If you're stressed, what ends up happening when you're stressed is that you have this cascading of events. I've talked about the HPA axis, the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal axis, which leads to the production of cortisol and also the increasing of adrenaline hormones like epinephrine, as well as vasodilating substances that allow the blood vessels to open up. Now, over time, these kinds of responses, they start wearing and tearing on vascular walls. They start to have these little micro tears. When you are under a lot of stress, you are putting uh, stress on your vascular blood vessel walls, as well as your intestinal system as well as the pancreas that produces insulin, as well as other parts of your body. And so your body then has to send over these pro-inflammatory biomarkers to help with the healing process. And therefore, you end up developing more complications in the future, the more this continues going on and on and on and on. Add to that then these influence telling you that you eating these foods very sugary, saturated fat, alcohol, um, high amounts of overly processed foods, red meat, so on and so forth. Now that becomes a belief system in your mind. So it forces us to have these food rules. Now it's important to understand something that I am saying. I obviously am not saying that it's totally okay to have a diet of Oreo cookies, ding-dongs, and sloppy burgers on a regular every day. <laughs> I'm not saying that. Look, it is important to have healthier foods, but that's factual. That isn't judgmental. So when you get influencers telling you, you should have these foods, it is inferring that you shouldn't have those others. And we know what happens when we should on each other. <laughs> Nothing but just a bunch of shit, right? Okay, so what foods help against infl inflammation? Now, you will hear that these foods are anti-inflammatory. They're things like MUFAs. MUFAs stand for monounsaturated fatty acids. Things like olive oil, olives, avocados, nuts, seeds, nut butters, and certain components in certain grains. So they contain what's known as these monounsaturated fatty acids. Obviously, they do not have saturated fat, right? Or very, very little. Fiber is another one. You've heard me talk about fiber quite a bit. 
We talked about how fiber actually helps reduce cholesterol out of the body. Fiber helps with the, the digestive system. Fiber helps you be more regular. Fiber helps you uh, build more energy, longer lasting. So the absorption of sugar decreases and it stands longer or it lasts a little bit longer, the sugar that is. And it also helps provide energy to the microbes in your gut, which that byproduct is a little bit of energy that goes into your metabolism. So you get a little bump in energy that you get fiber that's produced by the microbes in your gut. So those little bugs are little symbiotic organisms that are helping us out. And then there's omega-3s. They talk a lot about omega-3s being anti-inflammatory. Fruit and veggies contain certain phytonutrients that can be anti-inflammatory, xanthocyanine, anthocyanine, beta-carotene, isoflavones, so on and so forth. Beans, of course, would fall under fruits and veggies, fiber as well. And all of this contains all of these things that do reduce inflammation. However, in excess amounts, they too can be inflammatory. And folks, that's the whole message here. It doesn't matter if you're eating sugary foods, high-fat foods, fried foods, alcohol. We can talk about alcohol a little bit more in a minute, but um, generally speaking, alcohol, higher amounts of processed foods or overly processed foods, you can actually get inflammation when you consume a lot of anything on a regular basis. And folks, that's really what inflammation from food is really about. It isn't any one food that causes inflammation. It's this relationship of quantity or frequency to our emotional state. Yes, folks, what I am saying is that it isn't as simple as these foods cause inflammation or these foods are anti-inflammatory as much as where are we in life? What's going on with us emotionally? Are we dealing with certain illnesses? Do we have high blood pressure? Do we have diabetes? Do we have digestive issues? We actually don't know if it's a chicken or the egg thing. Is inflammation caused by these diseases or does inflammation cause these diseases? We actually don't know that. Look, folks, what I am trying to say is that inflammation first and foremost, is actually not very well understood. Again, I have to go back to what I was saying a little while ago about the standardization. We don't have gold standards for how to test for inflammatory biomarkers, nor do we actually know what those biomarkers are telling us in our body. Okay, so then what should we do? Well, first and foremost, I am not saying that inflammation is not a problem. Let, let, let me say that in the, in the positive. I am saying that inflammation, chronic inflammation, is definitely a problem. And we need to do something about it. However, we don't need to go and get biomarkers tested for stuff like this. If you're buying kits for that kind of stuff, you're probably throwing money down the drain. Because quite honestly, we, the best thing to do is to pay attention to what your lifestyle is like. Buying these testing kits, they don't tell us that it's leading to increased blood sugar problems. We don't know that it is causing diabetes. We don't know that it's causing high blood pressure. 
we don't know that it's because the heart is having a problem, so on and so on. So what we can do, though, is we can make changes that are going to help us reduce chronic inflammation on a regular basis. It's not rocket science here, folks. Let's start by slowing down. Yep, that's really it. Slow down and start paying attention to various habits that you are just not aware of. Habits that are out of sight, out of your conscious, but that keep you stuck in pro-inflammatory situations. Okay, let, let, let me go back to sizeism. While there is nothing we can do about what society says about our bodies, shapes, and sizes, or about body discrimination, we can start by paying attention to how we talk to ourselves. Slow down and pay attention to how you might be saying, I'm not enough, I'm not loved, people hate me, or I failed at something at work. When in reality, you're discriminating boss is probably the one that sets you up to fail to begin with. No, slow down and know you are not a failure. You are enough. And just because you snacked on sweets and chips, it doesn't mean that you are doomed to always eat like that. It doesn't mean you are a failure. It doesn't mean you should, there's that word again, just accept that you are what you think society says about you. No. That is not the case. It means that we slow down and pay attention to how we are talking to ourselves and try maybe thanking ourselves for thinking it. Name it. What is it that you're feeling? Say it. And then let's normalize it. Please know that those negative voices that you have been so used to hearing in your voice was taught to us. Maybe, maybe we taught it ourselves. We learn to talk this way to ourselves from others. But it is not us. It doesn't define us. We are much greater than even the totality of our thoughts. Slowing down and paying attention to our emotions, our internal dialogue, is a great way to bring awareness to those feelings and those thoughts. Bringing awareness to those feelings and thoughts is, by the way, a great way to realize that we have a different choice, a choice to act differently than we have in the past. But when we don't slow down and we repeat what we're doing on a regular basis, without sight, without mindfulness, we are doomed to repeat it. This is way more important than going on a diet, starting an extreme exercise program, or something to help you avoid eating those pro-inflammatory foods. Slowing down is a way of bringing awareness and realizing you have other choices. And this is a way to bring peace to your heart and mind. You know, I've talked about this mindful eating approach, slowing down and eating foods without distractions. You've heard me mention it in a few episodes here in the past. It's a way of slowing down and paying attention to your connection to food, feelings, and your body. This is a great exercise that if you feel you are eating things that are pro-inflammatory, paying attention to how often you are and how much you are eating it, and see how it might be tied to help you cope. This method wasn't and isn't right or wrong. It was just 
a message that you learned or taught yourself to help you work through a rough time in the past. And now you might just do it out of sight, out of mind. It feels so familiar that you might eat in order to help you feel better. When you slow down and eat a snack or meal mindfully without distraction, do you notice whether that food actually makes you feel better? Probably not indefinitely. Probably doesn't even last that long. Are you aware of what you are feeling? Or better yet, what feeling you're trying to avoid, numb, or punish by using that food or having that? Are you aware of maybe something else you need? Like talking with a loved one, family member, a friend, or or maybe walking the dog? You might feel a little bit better just doing that. Maybe it's just about stepping away from the computer, the work, the grind for a few minutes. Maybe that's all you really needed. Slowing down is a great little exercise. It's a one small bite approach that I have with many of the clients that I do on a regular basis to actually help reduce inflammation. Eating less sugar, eating less fat, having more fruits, more vegetables, more fiber, more beans, or spending more time with friends and loved ones. Look, folks, all this really takes is to adapt one small thing that you can do. doesn't even have to be every single day, but you get into a habit of doing it and repeating it. Over time, what starts happening is that by repeating this, it starts taking over what you would normally been doing. It is a process. It is something that we need to learn. And so practicing it is what I'm getting at here, folks. So practice slowing down. And it doesn't matter whether it's slowing down at a meal or slowing down in general throughout the day. Taking 10 to 60 seconds, maybe two to five minutes. Stepping away from your computer, going out for a walk. All right, folks, I hope this has helped you. I hope this will bring you some stability and some fulfillment in life. Because again, this is one of the ways that you will then build a nourished life. One small approach. I'd love for you to go and rate and review this episode wherever you listen to your podcast. I also would appreciate it if you hit that subscribe button. When you hit that subscribe button, these episodes get automatically downloaded to your device so you don't ever miss them. And then share this with a friend or a family member that you think will also benefit from hearing this. Okay, folks, thanks again for listening in. I appreciate your time. And remember, chop that diet mentality, fuel your body, and nourish your soul. Till next time, ciao. Oh, yeah.